Let's open our Bibles, please, the book of Genesis, the sixth chapter. We have taught the book before with about 40 lessons, which is uh, difficult enough to teach with that many lessons, and we've tried to decide to go through it as brief as we can, which will take uh, at least six or eight lessons, or four to six lessons, if we just give an overall view of it. And we gave you a division of this book last week, and we studied the first section of it uh, somewhat, but the division is uh, Genesis chapter 1 through 11. It covers a minimum of about 2,000 years. That's the first division of the book, and it, it covers the creation and the fall and the flood and the Tower of Babel. Well, last week we got from the creation to through the fall and uh, down to uh, the fourth, through the fourth and fifth chapter of Genesis and down to the sixth chapter, just covering the highlights of that portion of the book. And tonight we, our plan is to cover the flood, Noah and the flood, and if we get to the Tower of Babel, just to hit the high spot, spots of that. The second division of the book covers from chapters 12 through 50, and it covers a period of about 350 years, whereas the first uh, 11 chapters cover a period of about 2,000 years. And uh, the second division of the book covers uh, primarily the lives of four men, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, though there are many others that are involved in, in surrounding their, uh, their lives. But that's what we uh, want to cover as we highlight those remainder chapters from chapters 12 through 50. We'll give you the call of Abraham and some things about Abraham, some things about Isaac, uh, about Jacob and then about Joseph, which uh, covers uh, chapters 37 through 50. Now then, this first division, we've studied uh, creation. We've studied Adam and Eve. We've studied Cain and Abel. We've studied Seth. We've studied Enoch and Methuselah. And we're brought down to chapter 6 now, having to do with Noah and the flood. And uh, then we'll get to Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. And I believe that would suffice to give you uh, kind of an introduction to what we intend to do tonight. We're going to cover these last two thoughts of this first division, the Lord willing. So uh, tonight I'd like for you to look at the sixth chapter of Genesis. Now then, uh, all of you know that I uh, usually study in much detail and cover chapter by chapter and verse by verse and consider every point, but we can't do that in teaching this way, but I would like to say that we won't uh, neglect to point out the important things as we go along. So we will read the uh, sixth chapter, and we'll study a little bit more here than we do on the latter part of the of the uh, this section of the book of Genesis. If anyone needs a Bible, there's some extra Bibles on the back pews, and one of the brethren will get you one. Does anyone need a Bible, or brother Walker? If you get some folks a Bible or a blue, if you need one. All right, so Genesis chapter 6, and we begin to deal with Noah and the, the uh, warning that God gave, the wickedness that was upon the earth, the warning that God gave, the building of the ark, the flood, and then the new earth, and then Noah's uh, sin of actually he just kind of fell into it. He planted a vineyard and made himself drunk, and then he brought a curse upon the whole race because of exposure to his sons, and uh, one of them, of course, uh, committed uh, a sin, looking upon his father's nakedness and brought a curse upon he and his race from then on. And then we have, especially we want to point out God's covenant with Noah. 
And we're not going to uh, limit ourselves to have to cover that portion of Scripture because if, if we get uh, tied up in giving you some details in the 6th and 7th chapter, we will do that and then we'll find other ways later on to give you more brief uh, studies. So, Genesis chapter 6. <clears throat> and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, uh, said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were men, which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth. And behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then he gives the directions for the ark. I think we better get some detail in this early part. You know, there's a lot of uh, speculation as to what happened here that brought this wickedness upon the earth. Uh, there's one school of thought that, me that teaches, and I don't believe it, and I'll state that right, right up front, that angels came down and married uh, men, uh, and married the daughters of men, the sons of God, or the angels, by some people's uh, thinking. I believe that these were men. And I want to show you several things here about this. It says in verse 1, it came to pass when men, now notice this, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And to me, it, it signifies that the godly men of that day became very loose in, the, in choosing their wives, and they choose, chose wives of all of those that uh, were ungodly. And we find that they took uh, wives of all which they chose. And uh, there's one line of teaching that teaches, of course, that these were angels. Let's go on down and read again. In verse 3 it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with angels, no, with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be in 120 years. You come down uh, in verse 4. It says, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. The word men is used so many times. Now, in verse 5 it says, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. He did not uh, say uh, that the wickedness of angels 
that had married men, and this combination of a union was, uh, was great in the earth. But he said the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continue, continually. And in verse 6 it says, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. You see, all the emphasis all the way through is upon man. In verse 7 it says, The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast. So you find that uh, God didn't say it repented him because he had made the sons of God in heaven, or angels, and they had come down and married the daughters of men. But he says it repented him that he had made man on the earth. So I believe that these were uh, men that were of the godly line, of the line of Seth, and they became, they married all these wives in which they had uh, chosen. And uh, you find a mixture there that brought about wickedness in the earth. And uh, the ultimate thing was that God was displeased and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And... Uh, of course, they were all born of sinful parents, and God had to bring judgment, and God gave a warning to Noah. There's so much more that could be said about that subject that I've spoken of. Uh, if you'll remember that in the New Testament that the Bible teaches that in heaven that we'll be as the angels, which will neither be male nor female, and uh, I don't believe I believe by that reference alone would show us that these people did not come down and marry. Uh, men upon the uh, married daughters of men upon the earth that the sons of God here are sons of God that were of the earth and not of heaven and of course I say that is a problem that uh, many deal with from time to time and some of the best scholars that I've read after have said that they are but be that as it may let's go on with the thought the next thing we find is the warning that God gave it says in verse uh, 7, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and every creeping thing, and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. We find in the midst of all that ungodly scene that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And it tells us that uh, God looked upon the earth and it was corrupt in verse uh, 11. And the earth was filled with violence wonder how much like today it is. It's filled with violence all over. Right before I came to uh, the service this evening, you can see violence breaking out and riots breaking out, not only in our country, but all over the world there's violence. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come uh, before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. But then God says he will make an ark, in verse uh, 14. He says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make in the ark, and in, the, in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shall be set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. You know, <clears throat> there are three arks in the Scriptures. There's a, the ark of Noah, and this was to shelter Noah <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and his family from divine wrath, from God's wrath and judgment that was to come upon the earth. 
And then later on, there's the ark of bulrushes that was to shelter Moses from Satan's assaults. And then there's another ark, the ark of the covenant. And that shelters us from the condemnation of the law. Because remember, in the ark of the covenant, were placed the, the tables of stone uh, written with the finger of God. And there they were kept. So we might say it signifies that only in Christ is the law kept. And only in Christ are we sheltered from the law. Only in Christ are we sheltered from Satan's assaults. Only in Christ are we self sheltered from God's wrath. And it's true that in Jesus Christ we're sheltered from all of these. If you were to look at the construction of this ark, you'll find that it has a lot of uh, typical and symbolical meaning. Verse 14 says the ark was to be made of gopher wood. And it's, this signifies the uh, natural aspect, the, the fact that it may speak of the humanity. If the ark speaks of Christ, the gopher woods would speak of the human nature of Christ. We find that it says it's to be pitched within and without with pitch. The word pitch in the Old Testament, there are 70 times over, it means to make atonement. So it was based upon the word that indicates atonement. And then we find that there was a window to be put in the top of it in verse 16. So that I guess Noah and everything, had to, they couldn't look out upon the judgment of God. They had to look up. And that's what we're told to do in this wilderness journey, is to look up to God. Keep your eyes on the Lord. And then there's a lot of things we could say about it, but we'll go on and show out and speak of the fact that there was a door of the ark set in the side. Physically and literally, it was set in the, the, the side of the ark for the purpose of everything that would enter in had to come in that one door. All the things that uh, were of a low uh, stature and had to uh, crawl up and walk up that were small had to come up. The creeping things had to come up. And all the things that the birds that came in, of course, there were some that would not, but there, those that came in were to come in. They had to come down. And man and all the animals of a normal uh, size had to walk in. So it indicates that there's only one way for uh, all to enter into the, to the door, into the safety of the ark. There was only one way then. And it indicates to you and I that there's only one door for man to enter into Christ and have salvation. The rich and the poor, the bond and the free, all have to enter in the same door. And then we find that it was set in the side thereof. I wonder if this doesn't indicate that through the pierced side of the Lord Jesus Christ and because of His shed blood, there's opened up a way of salvation and only through the shedding of blood is there remission of sins. And then we find that... Uh, there's a lot of typical things that we could uh, study about the ark. But I want to give you some things here that may uh, help us to understand. First of all, uh, the ark was provided when death threatened the whole human race. In verse 5, it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 7 says, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. So that the ark was provided when death threatened all. And that's how Jesus was provided. The, uh, the whole uh, 
bulk of humanity was threatened with the with judgment, and the Bible te- teaches that uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. And so the threat of death and of judgment was upon all of us. And only through Jesus being provided was there a way of escape. And the ark was a refuge which was, secondly, the ark was a refuge which was provided by the Lord. Noah didn't provide the ark. He built the ark, but God provided the descriptions of it, the description of it and how it was to be built. And you know, Jesus Christ is that one who was of God's divine provision before the world began. Our salvation and the provision for our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ was not any afterthought with God. God didn't have to tell Noah back there when he was about to bring the flood. He says, now look, I've got to think of a way to protect you. It was already in the mind of God. He already knew what he was going to do. And the Bible teaches that Jesus is the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8. And so before ever a drop of water fell, before ever th- anything ever happened upon this earth to bring the judgment of the waters of the flood upon the earth and, and destroy all mankind, God had a plan for Noah. And then God revealed that plan to Noah. And Noah carried out that plan. And he built that ark according to the specification. And do you know, uh, thirdly, the ark was the only known place of refuge for that age. This is the only place that men could find a refuge. And just as there is only one place of refuge for man today, did you know there's no other place where men may turn and find refuge from uh, the, the judgment and wrath of God other than in Jesus Christ? There's no place today that man can find uh, that safety. And we're told that we have fled for, uh, for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. And uh, in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Into this ark man was invited to come. The word come is used 500 times in scriptures. And it begins back here in the book of Genesis. In fact, you have in the sixth chapter, Thou shalt come into the ark. And here God says, Come into the ark. And then the ark also was proven to be a safe place of refuge. It says in verse 11, you have the seventh chapter, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day where all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind, and all cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, and every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two, of all flesh wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, and God, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. It was very safe because God shut him in. 
He was inside the ark when the judgment of the waters of the flood came upon the earth. When all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, Noah and all of his family were safe in the ark and everything that he took with him in the ark. And by the way, the ark offered absolutely no hope for anyone on the outside when the door was shut. It offered no hope. They were all sealed out. So there's going to be a time that every person that refuses to take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ will find himself on the outside and have no hope. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that, that we were Gentiles in times past having no hope and without God in the world. But then God opened up a way of hope. And then that way of hope, when it's once rejected, finally will uh, the door will be shut. You know, one thing we can see here is that there was perfect safety and security for those that were inside. It says, and the Lord shut him in. When God shuts you in and seals the door. So it means that that God brought salvation to all who came in and their salvation was sure and determined and complete. And there was great assurance for Noah and all of his family. You know, if you remember the word of God to Noah, he says, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. As if he were on the inside. He didn't say to Noah, You go into the ark. I'll be out here. He says, Come thou. Uh, if you look in the 8th chapter, when the, when the time came for him to go out of the ark, notice what God said in verse 16, verse 15. God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark. He didn't say, Come out of the ark. But he says, go forth. There's an indication that God was with him all the time, all the way through the judgment of the flood, and he was there with uh, Noah all the time. And it says in verse 18, And Noah went forth, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. You see that God offers protection and safety and security for all who come into Christ. Someone might say, well, you can get into Christ and find safety, but you can, you can uh, also get out of Christ and lose your salvation. Well, I don't know if Noah could have got out of that ark or not. God said he sealed the door. Noah couldn't get out of the ark. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And he says, My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So I believe we're sealed in Christ. The Bible says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. And I believe that our safety is in Jesus Christ, and that the Bible teaches security of the believer in Jesus Christ. So we find that there's a lot to be said about Noah and the ark. Uh, if you'll notice, the ark brought salvation to all who came in, and the proof of it is in the 7th chapter, verse uh, uh, 23. It says, Every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of heaven, and they were, dis uh, and they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only, now look, Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. There's the statement. Noah only remained alive. That means that 
It brought salvation to all who came in. They were perfectly safe and secure, and they did see that there was complete salvation. Uh, we find that chapter 8, verse 1, it says, God remembered Noah. The Bible tells us that the waters were restrained in verse 2. The Bible tells us that the waters were abated in verse 3. The Bible tells us that the ark rested in the seventh month on the seventeenth day of the month upon the mountains of Ariat, and the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. And in the tenth month of the first day of the month were the tops of the mountains seen. It came to pass at the end of forty days, this is uh, Genesis 8, verse 6, that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from the face of the earth, from off the face of the earth. Why would he? The raven went forth, and he he didn't come back. The raven is is an unclean bird. We speak of the raven as maybe a type of the world, an ill omen, and it made its escape when Noah let it out, and no doubt it found a resting place on the some floating carcass. It may be typical of the carnal mind that can rest on anything and everything but the Lord Jesus Christ and can feed on all kinds of uncleanness. The raven, it can find all its needs in a scene of death and is not occupied with the thought of a new world and its glories. It went out on the sea and the waters and if it could find a carcass to rest upon, it stayed out there. It didn't come back. But what happened in the next verse? In verse 8, well, you know, Noah knew that there were still waters out there. And he, when he sent the raven out and waited and it didn't come back. In verse 8 it says, Also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the earth, of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. And she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were upon the face of the whole earth. Then he took forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. What about the dove? The dove is a sweet emblem of the renewed mind, which amid the surrounding desolation seeks to find its rest and portion in Christ. And not only so, but also lays hold of the earnest of the inheritance. And he laid hold the second time of the olive leaf and furnishes proof. He finally, She finally furnishes proof that the judgment is past because she brings the olive leaf. Let's read it again in verse uh, 10. It says, And he stayed yet other seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came into him in the evening, and lo, and in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off, so Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. <clears throat> the dove had to find rest. The dove signifies innocence. The dove signifies the fact that, uh, that Jesus is the abiding place and abiding rest and the portion of our own hearts. The olive leaf is symbolical of peace. The dove waited for his time of rest. And so we must wait for our time of rest. Our perfect rest is when Christ comes again. 
and we, we won't have a rest completely until He comes again. And we have the new earth before us. You have in the uh, remainder of the chapter, the 8th chapter, let's look at it. Beginning with verse 16. Uh, well, verse 15, we read it a minute ago. And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife, and thy sons, and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. That's important when you come to uh, the study of Nimrod later on. Because uh, God said to Noah, be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. In other words, not just stay in one place. And Nimrod, he wanted to stay in one place. They they refused to be scattered upon the face of the earth. They wanted to build a tower that reached into heavens. And and Nimrod is typical of those that rebel against God. We'll get into that thought later on. But let's notice the remainder of this. Verse 18 says, And Noah went forth, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, Every beast, every creeping thing, every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth of the ark. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more every living thing, everything living rather, as I have done. While the earth remaineth seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The first thing that we find is that Noah became a worshiper of God. You know, man would have worshipped the ark from the natural standpoint, but Noah worshipped the Lord. Man always wants to find an idol to worship. He'll worship the image instead of worship God. All through the Old Testament, I believe that's why God didn't let us know where Mo and let the children of Israel know, know where Moses was buried. They'd all been walking around where Moses was today. They'd find this, they'd build a shrine. They'd build an image. They'd stand there and think that's the only place in the world that the that children of Israel could worship. And so he put him to sleep and he buried him so no one knows where uh, Moses was buried. And so we find that here, the ark, and Noah did the right thing. He built an altar and he worshiped God. Noah's first act was not to build a house for himself, but to build an altar unto the Lord. Have you ever noticed people want to put first things first? They, the first thing is to worship God. Uh, sometimes we always think we have our own things that we sh- should come first. But God deserves first place. And we ought to put Him first. So, He built an altar instead of building a house. And He put th- first things first. And God's response to Noah's decision and what Noah did was very sweet because the Lord smelled a sweet savor. In other words, he was well pleased with it. And then we find in the ninth chapter, it says in God, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And he tells him what to do. 
And he gives some commandments concerning certain things. I want you to notice, beginning with verse 4 through 7, he gives three things that are very strictly commanded. Man, after the judgment fell, three things are pointed out. Not to eat blood, and human blood not to be shed, and uh, to be fruitful and multiply. Let's begin reading with verse 4. He says, well, let's read verse 3. Every moving thing that liveth shall be uh, meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. Not eat blood. This is, there are three requirements of this covenant that God made with Noah, and the first was not to eat blood. And then it says, and, and surely your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it, at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. You know, we have laws today that are, People argue the in, inhumanity of people having to pay with their lives for committing murder, rape, and all these things, and then murder, finally kill people. And all the criminals that we have maybe have killed a half a dozen or as many as 20 or 30 people, and they say, well, he was insane. Well, sure he was insane when he did it, but it doesn't mean he didn't know what he was doing at some point in time. And those guys, they get by with that, and then we spend... Uh, thousands and thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars to keep them for a lifetime in a prison when God says in His Word, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And, uh, you know, I don't know all the things about dealing with criminals, but I do know this, that if a man thinks that he can get by with things and there's no penalty and no judgment for doing things that are wrong, he's more free to go ahead and do it. And uh, if you just look at it the world world over, we'll find that our laws, according to God's Word, have diminished to the place that, that there's no judgment or penalty for anything anymore. Look at all that's happened out in California recently. And you know, just because there was one one or two bad policemen, and it's not convinced yet that all the story is told by what we see on the tape, but I feel it was bad enough. But the point is, we were not on that jury and heard all the evidence either. And uh, they tell me that if a guy shot with one of those stun guns, or whatever they shoot them with, that it'll put you down that quick. And this man had been shot twice and he was still raving. So I don't know. I wasn't there. And they may have had to do more things. I don't justify them. Don't misunderstand me. But on the other hand, what justifies all the riot and all the stealing and all the killing and all the violence that was going on there? Nothing in this world justifies that. And I believe that those uh, kind of people were just looking for an excuse to say this is what caused it. And to, and to use that for a reason for their wickedness and their thievery and all that was going on. And if people want to find the excuse, they can find it. I don't think any of the crime that was committed after this man, after that Jewish decision came down was justified, any of it whatsoever. And that doesn't mean that I agree with the decision. But I think that a lot of those things happen, and we still have to have laws to live by. 
And God's Word gives us some more, more things here. The last thing He said in verse 7, And you shall... And you, be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. So those were the three things. And then God said He would make a covenant with Noah. In verse 8, He says, And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, I want you to notice how many times the word I is used. It's God's covenant with Noah. And I, behold, I establish my covenant. See verse 9? We're in chapter 9, verse 9. He says, I, even I, establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, of every beast of the earth with you, from all that goeth, uh, that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my, I want you to notice the word I and my all the way through here. I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of the flood. In other words, God was saying, I'm going to make this covenant myself. It's my covenant. This is what I have agreed to do. God is sovereign in His actions, and He said to, to Noah, this is my covenant that I'm going to make. He didn't say, Noah, do you agree with this? He didn't ask Noah anything about it. He says, this is what I'm going to do. You know, a lot of times men think that that we have to come into some agreement with God as to whether or not He does uh, uh, something with us or for us, and we have to come into an agreement and decide that we will agree to uh, have this relationship with one another. He says in verse 11, And I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. There hasn't been, has there? It says, And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature, which I make, notice, between me and you and every living creature that is with you for, a perpet for perpetual generations. And here's, here's the token. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, and you and every a living creature of all flesh, and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant, which I have established between me and all uh, flesh that is upon the earth. He says, I'm going to put my bow in the cloud. And when you see that rainbow, you can rest assured that God is still keeping His word <clears throat> concerning the fact that He's not going to bring the judgment of a flood upon the earth anymore. And God is true to His word. He has been for thousands and thousands of years, hasn't He? And He kept His covenant. You know, the colors of the rainbow. I said when I started this, I wasn't going to get into detail, didn't I? Shows you how foolish I am. But anyway, the colors of the rainbow, there's red that speaks of blood. There's green that speaks of grace. There's yellow that speaks of illumination. There's purple that speaks of royalty. There's blue that speaks of heavenly. There's orange that speaks of purging. And there's white that speaks of purity. 
all these seven colors mixed together in that rainbow. These are wonderful things that uh, prove to us what uh, God will do. And we know we have salvation through the blood of Christ, and we have the grace of God extended to us. We have the illumination that God brings to us. We uh, see that he is uh, indeed royalty, that he is not only Christ the Savior and our Lord and Savior, but he's uh, King of kings and Lord of lords, or shall come in that way. We know he's the Lord that came down from heaven, the blue, heavenly. We know that by himself he purged our sins, the orange. And we know that as far as Jesus is concerned, the white speaks of the complete purity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinlessness and the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then we get into the last part of the ninth chapter. Pick up with verse uh, 20. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken. And he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Sham and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both of their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be. Now look, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. It was Ham that had come in, and he says, and this is the son. Let's go and read. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Sham, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Jacob. So he pronounced a curse upon uh, Canaan's descendants, I mean Ham's descendants, and he pronounced a blessing upon Shem and Japheth. He said, God will bless. Uh, he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And he says, God shall enlarge Japheth, and shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And we find that over in the tenth uh, chapter then, where the sons of Ham, Shem, and Japheth went to, and the, their descendants. You get into the 10th chapter of the book of Genesis. And it tells us in verse 2 of the sons of Japheth. And it tells us in verse uh, 6, the sons of Ham. And we're going to see that this great one that we're talking about in the 10th and 11th chapter that rebelled against God was of the descendant of Ham. Let's read verse 6 on down. We'll come to Nimrod. It says in verse 6, And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mizraim, and Phut, and Canaan. The sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, Phut, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Ramah, and Sabtacha. And the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan, and Cush. Now look, Cush came from Ham in verse 6. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Whereof, wherefore it is said, even Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Babel means the gate of God. And later on it was called and considered to be confusion. 
Now you see, Nimrod was the one that was the first rebel. And he wanted to build a tower, a city and a tower that reached to heaven. Let's turn over to the uh, 11th chapter. And we'll find more about uh, Nimrod. Beginning with verse 1, The whole earth was of one language and of one speech, and came to pass as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and dwelt there. You know, when it says from the east here, it's like we talk about uh, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And only it doesn't mean that this is from Jerusalem to Jericho, but this is like going away from God. He journeyed from the east. The term means that they were trying to depart from God, get away from God. Going down, the downward course. And uh, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. Thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now that was blatant defiance to what God had said to Noah, wasn't it? God says, Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. And they says, Let's stay here and build a big city. Let's build a big uh, tower. Let's uh, build a, an empire. And that was what Nimrod wanted to do. This was a desire for fame and a stronghold. And it was blatant defiance against God. Once again, the human race was guilty of apostasy. We find Nimrod's chief ambition and desire was to rival God. And it's, uh, Nimrod is not only organized an imperial government, but instituted a new and idolatrous worship. And it was his purpose to do exactly what God didn't want done and to do the opposite of what God wanted for them to do. You know, when you want to disobey the Word of God and the will of God and the plan of God and the pur- purpose of God, that sounds bad enough, doesn't it? That, that means that he was a rebel. By the way, he was from a branch of Noah's family, we've already pointed out, bearing a curse. And Nimrod means the rebel, or let us rebel. And he sought to defy God. And he was seeking to deify and glorify man. Does that sound as old as, as Lucifer? It certainly does. Let me read for you in the, in the book of uh, Isaiah. Let's see if I can find it. The 14th 